We are in the final episode of the life of Joseph that we've been considering over the last seven or eight weeks. And I want to take you to the very final chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis is obviously the first book of the Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, that's where it is. And Genesis 50 is the last chapter of that book. So it's fairly easy to find. Um, Shanice is going to put the words on the screen for us also. But let's read from Genesis 50 and verse 15. Now, for context, it's important to just understand here that after the reconciliation that Joseph experienced with his brothers in Egypt and the fact that all his family then moved to Egypt, they've lived there for 17 or more years. And he brought his elderly father, and his father Jacob has just died. And of course, this leaves the situation a little bit exposed whenever a death of a significant figure takes place within a family, there's often um, all the family feuds can come to the surface. Something of that is beginning here with the death of the father and the brothers who'd wronged Joseph all these years before are, as you'll see, getting a little nervous. So we pick up Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. It says this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are to this day. So do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. <clears throat> now, without doubt, one of the reasons why this story has been uh, particularly resonant, not just through, through history, but also in my experience just in the last couple of months as we've gone through it as a church, and many people have found um, help in the story of Joseph. One of the reasons for that, I think probably the, the main reason for it, is the reality that this man faced suffering and he lived a hard life. There's no question that Joseph had a, a difficult life. In many ways, it would cause most of our stories to pale in comparison to the things that he went through. And you think about the experiences, the succession of experiences that he went through and the ways that that would have affected him, how he was rejected by his family. And I know that some of you would have experienced this at points in your life, how brutal that can be to experience rejection from your own family. 
and what deep scars that can cause within you. He then, of course, went through experience of unbelievable miscarriage of justice and the injustice of being falsely accused of sexually assaulting his master's wife and the result of that, of course, being that he was put into a prison. And then even in his later years, you see Joseph, even as he's elevated to this place of dizzying power and authority, remember, he didn't apply for the job. You often question whoever would apply for a job like that. You have to be unbelievably narcissistic, don't you, to think that you can run a country. And uh, Joseph didn't apply for it. This was thrust upon him, this responsibility, this stress, this, this great sense of having to take care of people in the face of an oncoming famine. And you think all of these episodes of his life, put them all together, and there's no question that the man must have been um, put under un- extreme strain spiritually in his soul. Now, we live in a day and an age. You ask, well, what kind of, what kind of things would he would he have experienced in his soul? What, what, would, what would the likely response, a normal human response be to these kinds of experiences? We're living in a day and age in which we are increasingly aware, aren't we, of our interior life and more willing to talk about it such that it seems that every other person I talk to is going or has been to therapy. And if ever there was someone who would be a candidate for therapy, it's surely Joseph. You know, a therapist would look at him and think, there's work to do here, right? You'd imagine so, because you put all this together, what's the kind of stuff that would have likely have arisen in him? For one thing, you know, to go, go through these experiences, especially the rejection by your own family, typically would induce deep melancholy, depression, sadness, a kind of deep scarring of your soul, right? And then, of course, to have gone through all the injustices he went through at the hands of his family and others, would likely bring about a bitterness of soul, a sense of anger, a sense of resentment at what's happened unfairly. And any, if ever you've been through something that you consider to have been unfair, I mean, it does, doesn't it? It, it, it ferments inside of you and causes you to feel a kind of rancor, and toxic bitterness that, that bubbles away on the inside and can often spill out in all kinds of expressions that differ from person to person. And so... In my observation, I think of just through my experience of just examining my own heart, but also watching many others over the years, is that typically when people live a difficult life and they sit in an awareness of that, very often it causes you to turn in on yourself eventually in a kind of self-pity, doesn't it? And that self-pity can be at the root of so much um, that's, that's often wicked in our lives, a kind of anger against God that will excuse all kinds of ways of acting out and indulgence in sin because you think, well, God's not good and God's not caring for me, therefore I can do what I want. And it may not be that you express it in so many words, but that certainly is the underlying power and driver motive that so often leads people to act out in all kinds of ways. And what I'm suggesting to you is this, that if ever there was a person who could be excused living that way and feeling that way and bearing his pain out in public in this way, it was Joseph. It was Joseph. And yet what we find at every opportunity, at every opportunity to bring about, to, to kind of wear his grievance out there in public, the man seems to 
instead be full of grace and love and compassion. He seems to rise above his situation in a remarkable way that is a challenge to every single one of us. And the question I want to ask is why or how, really? These days, a lot of the ways that we act and behave are often explained through a combination of nurture and nature, aren't they? You think, well, do these things explain Joseph's reactions to the challenges of life? Was it nurture? Was this, was this guy raised to have extreme resilience in the face of hardship? And the answer, if you know anything about Joseph's early life, is emphatically, no, absolutely not. He was pampered up all the way through his, t- his childhood and through his teenage years and then put into extreme pain and hardship. So it couldn't have been nature, a nurture. Was it nature? Was it that he was somehow blessed with a sunny personality? You know, just, just wired to be optimistic. It's a remarkable thing. I was reading a little bit about the, the traits of optimistic versus pe- pessimistic um, uh, uh, people and how you can trace this all the way back into your childhood. You can basically diagnose a kid as being a happy or sad kid from pretty early on. I was looking at the, the various markers and I read all the ones for the happy kids and I thought, I don't identify with any of those. I read all the ones for the sad kids and was like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Praise God, I married a happy woman and all my kids seem to generally come out much better than I was. But anyway, all of that aside, you think, was this true of Joseph? Was he, was he someone who was just unbelievably blessed with a sunny personality that used just like water of a duck's back? He just went through life like he was coated in Teflon so that nothing stuck to him. And to be honest, I don't think you can explain anything in his life that way either. Whenever Joseph is, is, is faced with dilemmas, you see him pointing away from himself. Like when he encountered Pharaoh, Pharaoh is asking him about his supernatural abilities. Joseph isn't saying, look at me. He's saying he's pointing away from himself. In other words, he's saying the resources and power that I have to live the way I do don't come from something internal to me. They come from something outside of me. Therefore, the only way I think that we can really get to anything like an explanation of how this man went through buffeting after buffeting, through challenge after challenge, and how he emerged through it with so much grace and dignity, is to understand the great power and source of what enabled him to be the man he is, which is his relationship with the living God. Or to put it more clearly, his knowledge of God, his theology. Now, I know when I bring a word like that in, to the picture, you think, well, doesn't that just evoke images of books and dry academics? That's not what I mean at all. How can knowing God be of any practical help, you might ask? How is theology useful to me when I'm experiencing heartbreak, or rejection, or loneliness, or injustice, or pain of some kind? I think I get an answer from what a preacher A.W. Tozer said. He said this, listen carefully. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Make it personal. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Which is to say, your theology, your knowledge of who God is, touches every single dimension and aspect of your life. The knowledge of God is never something simply theoretical that only impacts you on a surface level. It gets right into you and reforms you from the inside 
and shapes not just your reactions, but your emotions and the life of your soul in the face of everything that life can throw at you. And I think that's what we're seeing in the life of Joseph. What is it that he knew about God? That's the question we have to wrestle with here. I, there was a preacher of the, in the uh, 1800s who preached not far from here in Elephant and Castle, a man called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he was a big fan of an earlier um, Puritan author called John Bunyan. You might have heard of him. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And C.H. Spurgeon used to read The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, he read it over and over and over again throughout the course of his life. But here's what he said about John Bunyan. He said <clears throat> that John Bunyan, if you read anything of his, and you'll see that it's almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, his great book that is most famous, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text for his very soul is full of the word of God. What a provocative description that is that Spurgeon gave of John Bunyan. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. And I think that I was thinking of that quote as I was preparing this because it, it, it very much seems to me to be the case that this is something like what we're approaching here with Joseph. Joseph didn't have a Bible. The Bible didn't exist when Joseph was around, but he knew the God of the Bible, right? And so press him, crush him, break him, prick him anywhere. His knowledge of God seems to just flow out from him, doesn't it? And it seems to me that in these final moments of his time on earth, as we're reading the kind of summation of his story, what we discover here are some of the core tenets of what made Joseph the man he was. If we were to grasp these things our lives would be radically changed. Let me show you what they are. Joseph, first of all, understood God as judge. He understood God as the judge. Now, remember the challenge of this particular moment. Ever since Joseph re-encountered his brothers after decades of separation and formed a kind of a truce with them where he was gracious to them and magnanimous and brought them back down to Egypt and, and took care of them even though they didn't deserve a thing. And they brought with them his father, the one he really wanted to see, Jacob. That's so much, there was peace for, for so many years as a result of this. But now Jacob has died. And with Jacob's death, the reality of the tensions of the family feud are there under the surface coming out again. And this is true from both ends. You can see it from the end of the brothers. They know that dad's dead. Now they're worried because of Joseph and his place of unquestioned authority. Clearly, there's been a relational tension. It shows you how sin and its effects linger in our lives, don't they? And particularly in our relationships. The brothers are nervous. And this is why they approach Joseph 
And they say to him things like this. They say, well, Dad, our, Dad's told us to tell you to forgive us. You think, well, they're probably just inventing this, aren't they? But then they add, it, add their own request, and they keep saying to him, please forgive the transgressions. We're your servants, they say to him. And Joseph's response to this is that he weeps. We've seen him weeping before when he first revealed himself to them 17 years earlier. And then it seems like he's, he experienced something of the healing of what took place in that relationship. Nevertheless, after all this time, the pain of the rejection that he experienced from them is still a raw, exposed nerve in his soul. It seems to me that people who have experienced this depth of pain, especially at the hands of people who, on whose love you ought to be able to depend, may carry that pain forever, or for the rest of their lives at least. I, mean, I saw this in my own, my own dad, who was a child of a broken marriage. His father was abusive and angry and his mother fled the home with them as children, so he was six years old, and he experienced this extreme distress of soul, this father hunger. And God invaded his life when he was a teenager and began to repair and to put things back together. But even as a grown man, when he was in his 40s or 50s, I remember watching the film Shine with him. And it's a story of a father and a son and the tensions of that relationship, a profound sort of depiction of father-son relationship and dad after finishing the film left the room when I sat on the stairs in our house and just sobbed his heart out for a long time and I think something like that's going on in Joseph's life here as his brothers come to him again and beg for forgiveness all of the pain comes to the surface once more and here's the difference right his father is no longer around to stop him doing what he might want to do Joseph is in this position of absolute authority, effectively, over their lives. And it's like, do you remember as a child when you found an insect and occasionally you just squashed that thing, right? I remember on one occasion getting a magnifying glass out and concentrating the beams of the sun down on a tiny little spider, helpless spider, and it was frazzled in a matter of seconds. My dad firmly reprimanded me for my cruelty to animals, and I never did it again. But you know that experience of power, how power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. How could Joseph not make the most of this moment? And yet what he does here, as his brothers beg him for forgiveness and say, we're your servants, they're kind of, they're kind of prostrating themselves before him. What he does is he answers them like this. He says, they say, behold, we're your servants. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now, what's coming through here is you prick him, his blood is bibline. His theology is coming out. And it's particularly a theology that enables him to walk in grace and forgiveness towards his brothers. How so? Well, there are two aspects to what's going on here, I think. The one that's more familiar to us is that this is an expression of deep humility. They're saying to him, you have total power over our lives. And he's saying, don't be ridiculous. Am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm just a man like you. This is extremely important for the Christian doctrine of forgiveness because what we recognize is that we, even when we've been wronged by others, 
We cannot elevate ourselves to a position of superiority and pride and judgment so that we stand over and above another person. Am I in the place of God? Am I the judge? If I were to assume the position of judge, I'd be a fool since God can see my own heart. There's certainly something of this coming through in what Joseph's saying here when he says, am I in the place of God? You're holding a grudge against someone. Friend, ask yourself this question. Do you have any right? Are you the judge? But there's another aspect, I think, to what he's saying here, and it's really implicit in this question. When he asks, am I in the place of God? What he's really saying there is that if I'm not the judge, God is. Now this is, this may surprise you, but this is actually one of the, the ways in which Christians take refuge in the face of hurt and pain and injustice in life. It's there in Romans chapter 12 where Paul exhorts the Christians. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now this may be troubling for you because what I'm trying to describe here is this, this bit of a dilemma, right? Because on the one hand, I'm saying to you, listen, Joseph put himself in a position of extending grace and love to his brothers. On the other hand, he's taking refuge in the fact that God is a judge and he deals with us. And aren't they kind of mutually exclusive ideas? You know, how can you say to someone, I forgive you, whilst in your heart thinking, and God will judge you? How do those two things go together? I think the answer, I don't, I don't know that there's any other way we can resolve this than at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why. Forgiveness always costs someone. Forgiveness has to, to, to be paid for with a price. And the Christian understands that the wrongs that we've done, but also the wrongs that have been done against us, are either dealt with by Christ's death in his body on the cross, or by his judgment in eternity, one or the other. So we take refuge in the fact, what we're saying here, and I think effectively what Joseph is saying, he's saying, it's not my job to make this decision about you. I hand it back to God. Maybe you can find forgiveness with him through repentance before him. And if not, then God judges those who don't seek him for forgiveness. Friends, as a Christian, what I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is you cannot hold anything against another person. Not if you believe in this God. And if you are holding on to stuff that's simmering away in your soul, God wants to remind you of his place of supremacy. He'd want to bring you back to himself. Joseph understood God as judge. The next thing that I see here is that he understood God to be absolutely sovereign and in control. Now, this is foundational for jo Joseph's entire outlook. Remember, we're asking this question, what is it that he knew about God that enabled him to pass through a succession of challenges and trials and experiences of suffering and emerge through this with dignity and grace? And I don't think that you can, you can in any way extract 
Joseph the man from his belief in the control and the power and the authority and the sovereignty and the lordship of God over all things. This is what he says to his brothers. Just after he's, uh, he's asked them the question, am I in the place of God? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are to this day. In other words, he is, ex- he is expressing his, co- his confident belief. that whatever the brothers intended in terms of the way they sold him into slavery and betrayed him in that way, the events of his life were ordained by a holy God even before any of this took place. And that God had a plan for Joseph which resulted in him being in this position of authority in which he could save not only the Egyptians but his own family, God's people. Now, this isn't an idea that only occurs here in Scripture. It is everywhere through the Bible. But let me just read to you a couple of verses which sort of back this up. In Proverbs 16, for example, it says, the heart of man plans his way. In other words, you go about your life, you're thinking about your plans. Even if your plans only extend to your next meal, you're very much a live-in-the-moment type of person, or maybe you plan much further ahead. It says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps, which is to say, God is intricately involved in all the details of our lives, superintending everything underneath and through it all. God is in control. And then there is this wonderful verse in Psalm 139. It's a psalm which has resonated with so many people where he says, Oh Lord, you search me and know me. It's a psalm of being known by God, being seen by God, even when you feel that your life is otherwise invisible to everyone else. But he says this striking statement. He says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. He means when he was just a blob of cells in his mother's womb. Your eyes saw me in that state, he says. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before I was named, before I came to be the person that I am, every day of my life was written in your book. In other words, you knew it before it ever happened. And if you knew it before it happened, then in a sense, it could not have happened any other way. My entire life happened according to your great plan, not according to my designs. Now, I know, I have no doubt that this is the theology that Joseph is articulating here. I also recognize that some of you are sat there and you're struggling with this for a couple of reasons. One is because you might be asking the question, well, listen, if Joseph really believed that God was in control, does that somehow absolve his brothers of the responsibility of what they did? Are they in any way to blame, in other words, if all they were doing was according to God's plan? And I say to you, listen, I think you may have misread what he's saying here. Joseph puts it like this. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. At no point does he excuse them or give them a way out in which they can somehow minimize the wickedness of their own acts. And to believe in the sovereignty of God does not in any way diminish the reality of our choices and how our choices can be so deeply wrong. 
we can say this, that we are fully responsible for the things we choose to do, but that God is absolutely in control. Some of you, though, may be asking this question. Well, look, isn't it easy for Joseph to say this, given the fact that at this point in time, he's sitting in a throne in a palace, likely with a servant wafting him with peacock feathers and another one dropping grapes into his mouth so that he can look back on the story of his life and be like, well, God meant it for good. And you say, well, how can I take refuge in the goodness of God? Because things haven't worked out for me. Bad stuff happened in my life, and it's not like I've ended up like Joseph. And I say, listen, I think you're misunderstanding him here. Joseph didn't come to this conclusion just because he'd experienced the blessings and the benefits of what God did to him. He never chose this role. God, Joseph believed in the goodness of God even before he ended up in this particular situation. And in fact, it's because of his unwavering commitment and faithfulness to God that God elevated to, them, to this position of, faith, of uh, service. You've got it back to front, in other words. He submitted to God's plan even before anything worked out right for him and God raised him up to this position of responsibility. I say, listen, of course, it may be difficult from where you're sitting to see how it's possible for God to work my situation for good, whether because of the mistakes you've made or because of the things that have happened to you, the years wasted, the mistakes that have been made, the deep scars that you bear on account of things that have happened to you. But faith has to be involved here somewhere. The Bible never promises us that we will fully see and comprehend all the reasons and the why for the things that happen to us and how God intends to work it for good. But it does affirm it does affirm that God wants to bring everything together for good. Faith is resting in a confident assurance that God is good, friends. And within that, there is space for the wrestling and the agony and the questions and the prayers, even the expressions of honest anger and frustration toward God at the situation you're in. There is so much space for that in the Christian walk. But when all is said and done, even if you never understand the reasons why, even if you cannot, like Joseph, look back and say, well, God, these things happen so that this would take place, even if you can't give those kinds of answers, you, you have to be able to come back to this confident assurance. Look, God did it all because he is good and he means to do good. In that sense, I think that our experience of life from the vantage point of where we are right now in the middle of all the confusion and the chaos is very much like if you subject yourself to surgery or go under the, in the dentist's chair. And what I mean is this. Think about what it is that we do. We submit ourselves to another person who cuts us open or who applies a drill that dr and drills into your, your, the roots of your teeth. And very literally, these people use 
tools that are instruments of torture in some regimes in the world, right? And you voluntarily subject yourself to the actions of these experts. Why? Not because you're mad, but because you believe that essentially they mean to do you good. Your confident belief that they are good means I can surrender to what they're going to do. When Joseph is saying, look, God is good and he means to do you good. You may not be out the other side of the experiences you're going through, but it is a belief in the goodness of God that will get you through. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. And then he goes on and explains it a little bit more a few verses later. He said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if ever you find yourself doubting the goodness of God because of what you see right in front of you. You say, my situation isn't like Joseph's. I haven't come out the other end of this all smelling of roses. And you have doubts and you have questions and you're in agony of spirit and soul. If ever you find yourself in that position, Paul says to you, listen, the proof of the goodness of God is there in the crucifixion of his own son. If God gave up his son to death on your behalf, you cannot question his love for you, his desire and his intent for you when you are his child. Joseph understood this, that God is sovereign. This is not, this is not mere theory and this is not esoteric theology. Friends, I know this from personal experience that a belief in the sovereignty of God will get you through everything in life. Let me bring you to one last thing. Joseph, he also believed in the promises of God. He believed in God's promises, that God is a God who makes and keeps his promises. Now, I think that here, as we are encountering Joseph in these final words on his deathbed, we meet him, in a sense, at a moment where you get a glimpse into the, the deepest recesses of his heart and of his soul. And if you ask yourself the question, well, how is it that this man managed to weather all the things that he went through in life and emerged through it with this grace and this love, and this trust in God? The answer is that Joseph never lost sight of the promises of God and of the future that God had promised for him and, and his people. Joseph, remember, was raised as a child of promise in the family of Jacob. Jacob is the one who we read a couple of chapters earlier, was told by God, God, I'll multiply you, make you a people and give you a land. And God not only said it to Jacob, his dad, he said it to Isaac, his grandfather, and to Abraham, his great-grandfather. So Joseph had grown up immersed in, these, in this sense of the dignity and destiny of being one of God's people and of the promises that would one day be fulfilled and guaranteed for them as God's people. It utterly shaped his way of thinking about life. And not only had he heard these things secondhand from his dad, he also 
had heard it directly from God himself. You glimpse this here in these last words of his at the end of the chapter when he says to his brothers, he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And what he's describing there are events that will take place about 400 years after. He's describing the exodus when they go from, at the moment, they're you know, a couple hundred people, probably, and they will become a million plus people and be subjected as slaves in the land of Egypt, and then God will deliver them and bring them across into the promised land. And Joseph, in his eye of faith, is glimpsing something of this future. And hence, this is why his dying wish to his brothers is this. You shall carry up my bones from here. Now, ask yourself the question. If Joseph has gone through life with this total certainty about the future for him and and the people of God. What effect did that have on him through all the trials he went through? And I believe that in his last words, the very last words of his life, you're getting a window into the driving force and the dynamo and the power of what enabled him to live the life he lived through every episode that we've encountered in, in up to now. For example, when you see him sold into slavery in the first place, he does not languish in a position of misery, depression, like so many of us when bad things happen to us, but he emerges as this slave who becomes so trusted by Potiphar that he runs the entire household. Why? Because he carries with him this sense, I'm a child of the promise. When he is Seduced by Potiphar's wife. He doesn't give way to the temptation. You think, well, how is it that he's able to withstand the temptation, particularly such a powerful one of this no-strings-attached sex for a young man who's never slept with a woman before? How was he able to withstand that? The answer, of course, is because he believed in the God of the promise. God has something better. You always give way to temptation when you think God doesn't have something better for me. This is the best that there is. And the reverse is also true. We can only resist temptation when we know God's promises are better. And then when he finds himself in prison, why is it that he doesn't then get into a pit of misery and depression and brokenness? Why is it that even there, he's so eminently different from his, the other men in the prison that he's put in a position of leadership so that he's basically running the prison as a prisoner? And the answer is, well, because... He carried with him this sense of being a child of the promise. Things will work out. The future is better. Why is it that when Pharaoh appointed him to this position of leadership, that he didn't allow the power to utterly corrupt him and twist him into a man that power so often twists people, doesn't it? Why doesn't that happen to him? Because he understood, I'm here to serve God and the promises of God that hang over me and my people. Why is it that when he encountered his brothers, he's able, rather than crushing them, to forgive them and provide for them and supply all their needs because he recognized we're governed as a people by the promises of God and the future is more important than even the wrongs that have been done against me. Why is it that even now as he's dying, he is so clear 
do not bury me in Egypt. At least don't leave me here. Carry my bones up because he knows this future is certain. Now, friends, this is everything for the Christian. I found it quite poignant studying this chapter this week because, as you know, know, Joseph just buried his father in the early part of chapter 50, and now he is himself buried. As you know, three or four weeks ago, I buried my dad. My dad was very clear in life that when, when it came to his death, he did not want to be cremated. He wanted to be buried. Cremation, of course, its, its roots come from the East, where the body and the soul are these two separate things. So that the body, as it disintegrates and is burned away, the soul then can be released to go and inhabit another organism through reincarnation. And the Christian doesn't cremate because we recognize that the body is intricately bound up with the soul and we sow the body into the ground on the certain hope of the resurrection. Friends, our future hope is everything for us as Christians. And I can put it as strongly as this. I say there is no Christianity or Christian faithfulness in the present moment unless your heart is fixed upon a future hope. I can state that both negatively and positively. The negative way of saying it is like this. That a Christian without, who is not tethered to the promises of God and the future hope for which we live, is a Christian who will always experience their life being governed by the present. When good things happen to you, you will be elated. When bad things happen to you, you will be in the pits. Because the whole of your life is governed by the here and the now. But to put it positively, you can put it like this. That a Christian who is, who is deeply convinced of and lives for an eternal hope, as Joseph did, is someone who can weather all of the storms and experiences of life because they are tethered to something beyond this present moment, which is the promise of God. There's a vivid um, picture or metaphor for this that's given in the book of Hebrews, which I love when he's talking about the promise and the faithfulness of God. He speaks about God's promise in, in this way. He says, we have this promise as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, he says, you imagine the the throne room of God where Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He says, there is, as it were, a chain that attaches your life to that place and the promise of God is an anchor that is anchored within the throne room of God so that no matter what happens in your life, whether you are swayed to this way or to that, whether you experience setback and crushing disappointment and suffering in whatever kinds of ways, you cannot be detached from this, this anchor point, the certainty of God's promise. This week I watched the, the, the documentary, The Dawn Wall, about the two climbers, Tommy Caldwell and his climbing partner, Kevin, who were the first to ascend that sheer face, the side, one side of El Capitan in the Yosemite National Park that no one had ever climbed before. And they did it through perseverance and successive effort, year after year, coming back, trying 
segments of the wall. Each segment is called a pitch. And every pitch they had to attempt dozens, sometimes hundreds of times with every single move perfectly coordinated like a dance move where my hand moves here, my left hand moves here, my foot moves there. And so that if you moved one limb wrongly, you fell off and they did fall off. Dozens and then hundreds of times in all of their efforts to climb this wall. But they didn't die because they were anchored. They were attached to the wall by their anchor point and a rope. And this is, this is what's being described for us here, friends. The promise of God is the anchor point for the Christian. So that your life Though you experience the ups and downs of the present, it does not determine who you are or how you react. In other words, you, you can fall. You can be blown around. You can stumble through, through life and fail hundreds of times. But ultimately, you cannot be detached from the promise. God will bring you through. And that is the sustaining power of our faith for people who face unbelievable pain and suffering and hardship and challenge in the way that Joseph did. What is the promise that we cling to, friends? It is the gospel. In Hebrews 12, we read that, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He was writing to Christians who were struggling. And they were experiencing a loss of joy in their faith because they were afflicted by doubt. They were saying, why did we choose to become Christians when the Christian life right now feels harder than the lives of our friends who are not Christians? That's what they were wrestling with. And he says, you need to cast off the weights and the sins which cling so closely because they will hinder your journey. And he says this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, you're flagging, you stumbled, you're on the precipice, you're on the verge of giving up. Don't give up, keep running. And then he says this, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, the one who saved you in the start and will bring you through to the finish line. Founder and perfecter, author and completer. And then he describes Christ's own per perseverance. He says, Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He's been through worse pain than you're going through. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is now elevated by the promise of God, to the place of supreme authority over all things. The Christian is someone who basically clings to this. Have you been sitting in a sense of sorrow, bitterness of heart, or of self-pity, unable to move, stuck in a rut, blinded or, or blinkered by the experiences that you've been through in life? God wants to reveal himself to you in a fresh way. He wants you to see the things that Joseph saw that enabled him to kind of rise above all of this. And to be a man whose life wasn't sunk by and squashed by and submerged by 
the experiences that he'd been through. Anyone had a justification for that. It was him, right? But instead, he came through it because he knew the God of the promises, the God who's in control, the God who is a just judge. I want to pray that God is going to do a work in our hearts to reveal himself to us in this way. The band are going to come and lead us in a response of worship. Let's turn our hearts to God now in prayer. Father, only you know the stories of every individual here. Only you know the days that are yet to come and the challenges and trials that we will walk through in our future. God, if we enter into this life ill-equipped, not knowing you, Lord, we'll be blown around like a leaf on the wind. We'll be a victim of our circumstances. And Lord, my prayer is, Father, that you will so show yourself to us as the God that Joseph so that we can pass through all things and keep our eyes steadily fixed upon you. I pray for those here who do not yet know you and who look at their lives and see nothing but hopelessness because they cannot see anything outside of themselves to put any hope in. I pray God come and invade here tonight but I pray also for those of us who love you believe in you but who Lord in some ways are falling short of this promise this way of living that is firmly rooted in who you are I pray come Lord bring liberty of soul bring a lightness of spirit bring new joy let it be an experience like the sun is, is rising on our hearts. You say, I see it now, Lord. I see who you are. I see what you want to do. I see how you want me to respond. So bring the kind of freedom that we need. I, pray. I ask it in Christ's precious. Amen.